I thought it was strange that the most important relationship we would have in the world would be with a God we cannot see or hear or touch. But still, but still, this is the God my family introduced me to. So it is, I said my prayers to this God, I drew pictures of this God, I dressed for this God on Sabbath, I imagined my future with this God in mind, and I even gave my life to this God when I was 10.5 years of age. And I know that because I wrote it in my little red velvet Bible, Christy Lou Nelson, 10.5 years old, baptized. But I still wondered, and I kept it to myself, Does anyone else think it's preposterous that we devote our lives towards a God we cannot see, we cannot hear, we cannot touch? I kept it to myself. This is actually the first time I've given it voice today. So I have empathy with the children of Israel at the base of Mount Sinai when they grow anxious because Moses is late. He's left them with Aaron and Hur. If anything is to happen, Aaron and Hur can take care of it. But the children of Israel grow anxious at the bottom of Mount Sinai. Remember in our story last week, right, that the children had a front row, the children of Israel, the nation of Israel had a front row seat at Sinai directly with God, but they couldn't handle the lightning and the thunder and the noise and the horn blowing and they backed up, they retreated, they forfeited. Moses, we don't know about all of that, but we trust you. You go talk to God. You you be our go-between. You be our person, Moses. So now when Moses has been gone a little too long, the Midrash, the Jewish writers who like to imagine these stories a little more, a little beyond the Bible, the Midrash says Moses was only gone half a day too long. But when Moses has been gone a little too long, the Bible says he's tardy. The Old Testament rarely uses this word. Moses is tardy. Let me read to you there. Exodus 32, verse one. The people saw Moses was taking a long time to come down the mountain. They gathered around Aaron and they said to him, come on, make us gods, gods that can lead us. And as for this man, Moses, who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, We don't have a clue what's happened to him. As for this man, Moses, we don't have a clue. You know, the one who brought us out of Egypt. Who brought them out of Egypt? That's a very accurate answer. Was that you? Who brought them out of Egypt? God. Over and over again in Exodus chapter 32, six times, out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of Egypt, out of the land of Egypt. And in their anxiety, you know Moses, the guy who brought us out of Egypt. Aaron listens to this. Aaron, who's first in charge. Aaron will go on to become the high priest of Israel. Aaron is like their conference president, friends. It's good. We got a great one. It's all good. It's a good analogy. Don't don't leave me now. Aaron will go on to be the high priest and he can hear, he knows the story. Wait, who brought us out of Egypt? But Aaron says this, all right, take the gold rings from the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took out all the gold rings in their ears and they brought them to Aaron and he collected them. He tied them up in a cloth. He's preparing to throw them into the fire. We might ask, how did these slaves from Egypt get so well accessorized. 
What's all the bling? I mean, they left Egypt in a hurry. They left so quickly, there's not even time for the yeast to rise their bread as they grab their bread and their babies and their aunties and their animals. Oh, and read Exodus 12. They plundered the Egyptians and took the jewelry too. So Aaron grabs the jewelry, puts it in the fire. Verse, continue. Then he made a metal image of a bull calf. And the people declared, these are your gods, Israel. The people said to each other, these are your gods. These are the ones who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Watch Aaron. He's careful here. He knows this is theologically off. He knows there's something wrong. So Aaron says, how about we build an altar in front of the calf? Tomorrow we'll have a festival for the Lord. You know, the one that brought us out of Egypt. Sorta, kinda. Can we recover this story? Aaron works with the people at the base of the mountain here. They got up early the next day, the text says. They offered burnt offerings. They brought well-being sacrifices. They sat down to eat and drink. They got up to celebrate. Your Bible might say they got up to play. Your Bible might say they got up for revelry. Your Bible might say they indulged in revelry. They rose to celebrate. They shamefully in shameful, without moral restraint. Or Eugene Peterson says, it turned into a wild party. One contemporary author says, when the dance floor is this crowded, everybody should go home. Nothing good's gonna happen. You got it, church? This is not a PG-13 scene now. Are we all together? This is what Moses hears from the top of the mountain. When Moses is late, the anxiety sets in. When the anxiety sets in, they ask Aaron for a substitute. It's amazing to me that Aaron, who, uh, Moses in this story for them, appears to be exchangeable that quickly. It would be normal for a bull to be the thing that's crafted out of the jewelry. A bull, this ancient uh, form of a deity, one of the earliest in antiquities, especially in Egypt. It has a name and you can hardly travel anywhere. You can look in literature, we can go to museums, we can visit ancient sites. It turns out that the bull in ancient Egypt is one of the first forms that represents a god, especially a god of fertility and then a god who will take care of the crops and, and then all sorts of attributes. It would be very natural for Aaron to shape a bull or a calf because it reminds them of home. We can go from museums from, from Britain to Brooklyn. You can go from Cairo to the cave walls in Spain. We will see bulls and calves everywhere as a symbol of divinity. This would be normal to them. Why a bull? Well, because a bull will remind them of home. Moses turns the calf in, out in the fire. Or, I'm sorry, uh, it, it would be normal for them to see a bull. Now, Moses on top of the mountain. God tells Moses, there's trouble down there. You need to get down. As Moses is descending, the Bible says he hears the sound of the party gone wrong, and this is what Moses says. It isn't the sound of a victory song. It isn't the sound of a song of defeat. The sound of a party is what I hear. And when he gets to the camp, 
Moses has in his hands the Ten Commandments. The Bible says that he grabs the calf, he throws it in the fire, he takes the remains of of what was burned, he scatters it in the water, and he tells the Israelites they have to drink it. And then he turns to Aaron, who will eventually become the high priest, and says, what on earth were you doing? Verse 24, I said to them, whoever has gold, take it off, They gave it to me, I threw it into the fire. This is Aaron talking. Students, you need to read that last line. It's a fantastic excuse for your teachers. (laughs) I mean, I just took the gold and threw it into the fire. A bull jumped out, it wasn't me. Moses. Whoever says the Bible is boring is not reading it. Don't look at me, Moses. These are your people, Aaron goes on to say to him. How can I help it if a bull jumped out? This is our story. I want to ask you this morning, this is a story about what? This is a story about what? Here are some options. A, idolatry. B, lack of faith. C, homesick for Egypt. D, jewelry. Of course, it's always about the jewelry. E, sin. Church, what is this a story about? Or you want to add other? You want to add all of the above? This is what we tend to do with stories with our children in our junior high and our high school and sometimes, sometimes even older. But I want to suggest this morning, this isn't a helpful way to listen to our stories as if it's only a story about one thing. Can we pause for a minute and back up, up on the top of the mountain with Moses and God? This is when God hears the people getting out of control at the top of the mountain. And he says to Moses, go down there, your people, the ones you brought out of Egypt, even God's got it going on not remembering the story. You get down there, they've, put, they've, they've cast things into the fire and they've made a calf and they're worshiping. God says to Moses this sentence in verse nine. I have seen this people, how stiff-necked they are. And this becomes the classic definition for Israel. Stiff-necked, you know this word, those of us raised with Bible. Stiff-necked, I don't know what do you think it means. Stiff-necked, stubborn, fickle, difficult. Oh, these stiff-necked people, we'll hear it again and again as characterization for Israel, the nation Israel. When our youngest daughter, Elisa, turned three, we had a wonderful party. She invited her little friends, as many could fit in the backyard. Because her favorite color was green, everything was green in the party. We cut out green footsteps from the front door. There were green steps that took you all the way into the house. Pause at this big wall. There's a mural of the rainforest. Her friends could get her markers and color. Follow the footsteps and you end up out in the kitchen where there's this gorgeous, huge cake her dad and I sawed out, uh, uh, really, with a saw. A snake, bright green snake from the rainforest. Follow the steps out into the backyard, balloons all over, games all over, green all over. About an hour before her party, I wake this little one up. It's your party day. It's party time, three o'clock in the afternoon. Wipe the little sleepy sand out of her eyes, change her little clothes. She has these green overalls she's gonna wear. I said, Elisa, it's today. Your green party is now. 
Mama, I don't like green. <laughs> no, you're not remembering. Let's do it again. Remember, you asked for a green party. There's green footsteps. There's a green mural. There's a green snake cake. It's so cool. Mama, I don't like green. I don't want a green party. As I pull the little green overalls over this little body, no, you like green. No, you do like green. And that quivering lips turns to the huge pour, the tears. I hate green. For this hour, can you like it? Something's about to break, it might be me. Is that it? Is that stiff-necked? Difficult? Fickle? A little obstinate? What is it to be stiff-necked? I've been rather taken by this Torah scholar, woman from Scotland, who gives me a, another suggestion. Her name is Ava Gottlieb Zornberg. She says, imagine this, in the back of the neck that there's actually a stiff rod, a steel rod. Some of you have some body parts like this. Actually, we have a church member, Nancy Lowry, in the hospital right now. They've almost constructed her entire spine down with something like this. But imagine it in the back of the neck, the scholar says, so that actually your neck is stiff. There is no turning and moving of the neck. And imagine that Israel has taken that stiff neck and backed it into God and their face is towards Egypt. And it is true that they are unable and maybe unwilling to turn when God says, listen to my voice, turn to me. That it is this stiff neck, this stiff back they have towards God because their face is towards the familiarity of Egypt. Maybe it is less that they have forgotten God, but that they're remembering Egypt. Because liberation is hard work. Maybe it isn't that they're being fickle, difficult, demanding, picky. Maybe it is that they have yet to attach to their God in the desert, friends. Consider that today. And consider this. There's one more conversation at the top of the mountain before we move to this communion table. Because we've been busy calling this story idolatry and disobedience and infidelity on the part of the children, but I wonder if it's, if it's less that and it's more anxiety and fear of a God they don't yet know. So up on the mountain, there was a little more of the conversation between Moses and God. It goes like this. Let me alone. This is God talking to Moses. Let me alone. Let my wrath burn. Let, me, let it burn against the Israelites that I might consume them. I'll make you a great nation, Moses. Hear this, he makes an offer to Moses. Like the offer that went to Noah, let me start all over again. Let me make you a great nation, Moses. Moses implored the Lord his God and said, God, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you brought out of the land? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that God brought them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? This is Moses talking to God, turn from your fierce wrath, change your mind, do not bring disaster on your people 
remember Abraham, remember Isaac, remember Israel, your servants, how you swore to them by your own self, saying, I will multiply your descendants like the stars of the heaven. All this land I've promised you, I'll give to your descendants, and they shall inherit it forever. And catch the last sentence, church, and the Lord changed his mind about the disaster he had planned to bring on the people. And the Lord changed his mind. There is a surprising, unsettling conversation between Moses and God on the top of the mountain. We should think about the rest of our lives. Is Moses' memory better than God? Is Moses more merciful than God? First of all, Moses says, these are not my people, they're yours. Second of all, Egypt is watching, the world is watching. Third, God, remember your people, remember your story. God has something to shout on the top of the mountain, but so does Moses. And it turns out God has cultivated a relationship with Moses so that there can be this kind of dialogue. I find this incredible. Remember that the people could have been there. They forfeited their front row seat with God. Moses is now their intermediary. It makes me wonder if this is the kind of dialogue we could have been having with God all along. This is the part of the story I hope we'll remember. God has something to say. Moses has something to say. God surrenders in this story. God changes God's mind. The language says God repents. God is sorry for God's action, thought, desire. Groundbreaking. God's not going to act with the coercion of Pharaoh. It's groundbreaking that the voices of the people are going to be considered seriously by God. It's groundbreaking that freedom will mark this covenant. It is groundbreaking so that little children can grow up in church and say, our Father which art in heaven, how is your day? Amen. That's what it means when we will not be coerced by a God, but that freedom will be allowed on the part of the people. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? To leave Egypt or to not leave Egypt, that's what's been going on all throughout this story in the book of Exodus. To leave Egypt or to not. Two narratives going on. One is driven by anxiety. The other is driven by a confident trust. The children of Israel stand between those two stories today. Deep anxiety, that came from Egypt. And it leads to control. Controlling God and controlling others. But confident trust is what's going to happen from Sinai forward. Turns out liberation is destabilizing for everyone, including God. Who is this God? This three-letter word we use to describe the one we cannot see or touch or talk to. I'm still troubled by this. It shall likely be one of my first questions for God. Was this really the way to do this story? Please remember that most stories in antiquity have a beginning and a middle and an end, but not so with the children of Israel. No one has the lights on back home. No one has a welcome party in Canaan. 
They have left a place. They have not only left Egypt, they have, God has condemned that way of life. There will not be bondage, there will not be coercion, there will not be oppression. This is scary, but this is the direction we're going. Two narratives in the story today. It is less for me a wandering, and this is now more an intentional march the children will make. It will be full of troubles. It will be full of input from the divine. They will stumble and fall, and it won't all be pretty. But it'll be led by a different kind of God than Pharaoh. Here's a summary for today. Wherever we live, wherever you showed up this morning, it's probably Egypt. There is a better place for all of us, a promised land. The way to the land is through the wilderness. And the way from here to there is joining hands and moving. Here at church, hear it in your relationships at home, where you might be today is Egypt, but there is a promised land. Hear it where you are in your career, in your vocational, hear it where you are in college students, hear it with your finances and your applications to graduate school. There is an Egypt now, but there is a promised land. Hear it in our contentious, angry world. We are in Egypt. There is a promised land. Hear it in the Seventh-day Adventist church. Today it feels a little like we're in Egypt and the coercion of Pharaoh threatens us, but church, there is a promised land. We are gonna hold hands and move. We're gonna tell the truth about it. Not gonna cover it up. We're not gonna pretend. We're not gonna pretend Egypt is not threatening us, but we are gonna keep our eyes on a God who is not like Pharaoh. Now, these are the stories that the boy Jesus was raised on. These are the stories that grew the boy Jesus. And one day he sat with his disciples at a table, said, let me tell you about a time the people were enslaved. Can we have a meal and remember? We were in Egypt, but we're headed to a promised land. Please prepare this morning, church, to take the meal that we all take together in the name of the one who loves us in freedom expressed in our Jesus. Amen.